Hello, and I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today for today's Blogger Media Roundtable. My name is Staff Sergeant Dale Sweetnam, and I will be moderating today's call. Today, we have three soldiers who served with the nation's newest Medal of Honor recipient, former Staff Sergeant Clint Ramisha, during the battle at Combat Outpost Keating, October 3, 2009. We have on hand Captain Stoney Portis, First Lieutenant Brad Larson, and Sergeant Thomas Rasmussen. Before we hear a few opening statements from the team members, we want to have a, discuss a few quick housekeeping items. Once the floor is open for questions, please state your name and organization affiliation clearly. Also, we ask that you keep your questions succinct and to the point. If you're not actively participating in the conversation, please keep your phone muted to eliminate any background noise. Keep in mind, we're here to talk about the Medal of Honor, Staff Sergeant Ramisha, his actions and leadership before, during, and after the battle, so please keep your questions on topic. We'll have time to basically run through uh, anyone who has any questions in the order they've dialed, uh, excuse me, dialed in, and we'll definitely have some time after everyone has the opportunity to ask some questions for some follow-up. So without any further ado, uh, hand it over to uh, Captain Portis. Hi, this is Stoney Portis speaking, and I was the uh, commander for uh, Bravo Troop 361 CAV from September 2009 until uh, through, the, through the entirety of the deployment and into 2011. Uh, I'd just like to say before we get started that uh, we're, we're here today and, and, and came to D.C. to support the Romaches and the Army in recognizing him for his valorous service. It's been a, a huge uh, event for the troop with a, a lot of pride and, and the teamwork that, uh, that it took that day to you know, beat an overwhelming odd. Uh, so I'll just tell a little bit about these guys that are with us today and, uh, and the actions that they conducted to contextualize uh, the battle and, and the service of, of Staff Sergeant Romache. So at about 6 in the morning on the 3rd of October 2009, uh, Combat Outpost Keating, which was in the Camdes District of Nuristan Province, uh, came under a complex attack by enemy forces estimated around 300 fighters. Uh, the fighters occupied the high ground on all four sides of the COP and initiated the attack with concentrated fire from B-10 recoilless rifles, rocket-propelled grenades, dishkas, mortars, and small arms fire. In the hours that followed, uh, Staff Sergeant Romache, which uh, we affectionately refer to as Roe, uh, would perform the actions that would earn him the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so with us here today are some of my soldiers, formerly my soldiers, who previously served alongside Clint uh, and other soldiers from Bravo Troop 3rd Squadron 61st Cavalry Regiment. We've got Sergeant Thomas Rasmussen. Hi, I'm Sergeant Rasmussen. I'm still at Fort Carson in uh, First Brigade, originally from Mountain, Minnesota. And then we also have uh, First Lieutenant Bradley Larson. Uh, hello, uh, Lieutenant Larson, uh, formerly Sergeant Larson. Uh, I'm currently a Chinook pilot in the Nebraska National Guard. So uh, these two gentlemen uh, just had some extremely valorous service, and I'm going to take a minute to, to brag uh, on them, and it'll contextualize their actions in association with Clint. Uh, so Sergeant Rasmussen actually was then Specialist Rasmussen, and, and despite being fired upon throughout the entire day by enemy rocket-propelled grenades and machine gun fire, uh, then Specialist Rasmussen was the point man for an assault team that pushed out to reinforce positions. He was the point man for the assault element that cleared two key buildings from Taliban forces, and he was the point man of one of the teams that was led by Sergeant Romache to retrieve two fallen comrades. Uh, Sergeant Rasmussen displayed uncommon valor throughout a tumultuous day, and, and knowing the grave danger he was in, routinely placed himself uh, in front of enemy fire, even, even though those who had gone before him 
had uh, sometimes been shot and, and, and taken from us. Um, so n knowing that grave danger, he continued to place himself in front of it while supplying battle positions and assaulting multiple enemy-held buildings. And for this, he was awarded the Silver Star. Uh, First Lieutenant Brad Larson, actually then Sergeant Larson, was the gunner on a vehicle battle position when the assault began, and he took immediate RPG strikes to his position. Additionally, accurate sniper fire sent bullets bouncing off the turret, and under this heavy fire, Sergeant Larson courageously remained in his turret and continued to engage with the 50 caliber machine gun. You know, he actually reloaded twice and fired close to 1,000 rounds from his position before precision sniper fire struck him in the head and the arm, and an RPG disabled his weapon system. So despite that, he fell back down into his Humvee and got back up to reman his, his Humvee, and uh, thank goodness for the protection of his, of his Kevlar, uh, was able to make it out of the battle. Uh, his actions led to the safe withdrawal of three soldiers from an endangered position. He actually carried one of those guys on his back, a casualty to the aid station, and uh, joined the assault team with Sergeant Rasmussen and Sergeant Romache, and for this he was also awarded the Silver Star. Um, unfortunately, Sergeant Armando Avalos isn't able to be, a, be here with us currently, but uh, another stellar trooper, and uh, you know we're thinking of him. And so what I'll do now, just a little bit about myself, I am, uh, or was the commander uh, that day, uh, two days before the attack, I was in a helicopter that was uh, fired upon by enemy sniper fire and uh, had to land in an alternate base. And so on the morning of the attack, I jumped into uh, observation post Fritchie on the top of the mountain, and uh, we fought our way down with the QRF, uh, the Quick Reaction Force, which was an infantry company. And uh, by the time we got to combat outpost Keating, it was about 6 p.m. that evening, and, and, and Bravo Troop had sustained uh, multiple casualties but continued to hold the camp and, and beat back an, an overwhelmingly numerically superior enemy force. Uh, so with that, I'll hand it off to Sergeant Rasmussen. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm still at Fort Carson. I was with Romache uh, pretty much the whole entire morning. I had uh, a position that I was at. I was helping Private Faulkner with the 50 cal machine gun, uh, relinking ammo belts together for him so he could continue to suppress enemy fighters. Um, and then throughout the day, you know, Romache, you know, scooped me up, and we just ran, went around the cops securing uh, random buildings trying to take the cop back from, you know, the Taliban force. You know, it's important to note, he won't say this, but I will. Uh, Sergeant Romache had uh, sustained you know, some pretty serious injuries from, from shrapnel received from a rocket-propelled grenade and continued to fight, you know, for, for several minutes before Sergeant Rasmussen actually got to him and performed buddy aid, uh, you know, uh, applying uh, bandages to those wounds and enabling Sergeant uh, Romache to continue to fight that day. So we really have Sergeant Rasmussen to thank for... Uh, for providing him the, the, the first aid that he needed. Uh, I'll, I'll pass it off to Lieutenant Larson now. Uh, what are your questions, gentlemen? There we go. All right, thank you very much, gentlemen. We're going to hand it off to, uh, to Chuck Simmons from the America's North Shore Journal. Do you have any questions, sir? I do, gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much for your service. Uh, I have some. Uh, I'm looking at the reproduction that DOD has up uh, of the of the cop, and I have some geography questions uh, that should be fairly short. 
to your south was a, a pretty steep ridge. Is that correct? The south was the switchback. Yeah. I mean, everything was pretty steep, uh, sir. Uh, uh, to our immediately south was the, were the switchbacks that the would waterfall. lead you up to the mountain, and then kind of south uh, west would be uh, no southeast was the waterfall and the diving board area, what we referred to as the diving board area, and that was a pretty, pretty switch, or excuse me, pretty uh, steep terrain as well. Okay, um, and then uh, to the to the north, is that a riverbed or a gully or what? What? What's the bridge cross? It crosses a river. Uh, it was actually two rivers that met at one point, and the bridge is what we use to get back and forth to either side of the river every day. Okay. Did the does the river provide a, an actual barrier to uh, to assault, or is it uh, shallow enough that it wouldn't? It was a pretty significant river. So Cop Keating was at the convergence of two major rivers, the Lande Sin and the Kustosi, Comp Kustosi or Nuristani rivers, depending upon which tribe you ask. Uh, it bordered that river, and so in some manner it provided uh, uh, an adequate barrier to the north and east. However, alternatively, uh, in, in some ways uh, that day, because of the nature of the attack being uh, surrounded 360 degrees by high ground, uh, in many ways, it acted as a as a fixing position uh, on the the soldiers of Bravo Troop. Okay, and, and my final geography question uh, to the opposite end of the camp from the switchbacks um, beyond the the tactical operations center. What are those buildings? There would be the uh, there were the A and A barracks. That's where the uh, Afghan National Army stayed on that side of the camp. Okay, and. Uh, then uh, can you talk a little bit about the ANA on that day, and uh, and also could you mention uh, what the Latvians were up to? Um, Hi, as far as the uh, the ANA, just kind of keeping this focus with uh, the gentleman here, and you know, their accounts from their respective uh, uh, lanes during that day. And as far as the, and Clint Romache and the overall effort that was put together to help repel uh, the enemy. Um, the Latvian soldiers that day were a huge enabler to us. They uh, they took a lot of initiative upon themselves to pretty much throw themselves in the fight and offer their services whenever they could. Um, you know they were they were right next to us when we were clearing rooms and you know giving us sniper rifles and ammo when we needed it and you know they were absolutely a huge help that day. Yeah, the Latvians came and actually fought with the men. You had a, a Corporal Dobbins, uh who fought with us as a, as a sniper, so uh, a very helpful asset to have for the fellas. And then uh, First Sergeant Lakis, L-A-K-I-S, uh, who also uh, knew, knew the eastern side of the perimeter quite well because the, they were uh, associated more with the Afghan National Army as their mentors. Uh, and, and then, uh, for that matter, you know, the, the two gentlemen here, including myself, uh, you know, to be frank with you, we, we just did not have uh, much uh, operational knowledge with the ANA that day. They were they were largely focused on the the western portion of the outpost, uh, and so the eastern portion would have been where the ANA were located. All right, thank you. All right, thank you. All right, thank you, sir. Jacob Rogers from the Gazette. 
Mr. Rogers, did you have any questions? Sorry about that. I had to put it off mute. Well, uh, yeah, I was hoping to talk with, uh, you know, First Lieutenant Larson. Uh, I haven't been able to talk to you yet um, just about uh, that day, and, and you had kind of a, just a unique perspective being out at that LRAS uh, for a while. Um, I, I, you know, I guess, first of all, um, when you guys first got in contact with uh, with Romache, um what was it like to finally be able to, to hear from those guys again and be back in contact with the rest of the soldiers? Uh, it was uh, very nice to be back with uh, Romache and Raz uh, after being pretty much pinned down in that Humvee uh, for six hours. It was it was good to hear that that we were still doing doing well as a group. And uh, once I linked up with Raz back up in the talk after we dropped Mace off at the aid station, uh, Lieutenant Bunderman told me that uh, Romache could sure use some help at the Shura building, and Raz was there to kind of lead me and guide me there. And once we linked up, it was back to business as usual, doing what we had to do. Yeah. Well, and then you mentioned uh, Mason. I remember yesterday uh, Obama uh, brought him up uh, to start off his, his speech. Um, I mean, your guys' actions that day to try to save him, could, could you just talk a little bit about, um, I guess, you know, when you got out of that LRAS and you started making that dash, I mean, what was going through your mind as you're, as you're making that, that run over there? Well, we we timed it uh, with, with Lieutenant Bonderman so that we would have uh, an Apache gun run and maybe – I can't remember if we had a fixed-wing gun run going on at the same time because I told him we're going to need some serious covering fire because we had a lot of open ground. We had to get Mace out of the Humvee onto a stretcher and get him get him to the aid station, and all I could think of was how fast can I run. Turns out fast enough. <laughs> cool, man. Well, uh, yeah, one last question. Um uh, I mean, I guess uh, some of the guys were able to head out to uh, the CMAs this week over at Arlington um, uh, on Sunday. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, how how was it to, to be able to uh, to visit him again um, before all the ceremonies? Uh, I'd never been to Arlington, so just the sheer size and numbers of people that are buried there was overwhelming. And then actually being able to see where Mace was buried, and a couple of the other people that I knew their names, I won't mention them, but it was it was pretty amazing. Uh, felt felt it a little more that day than than I normally do because it it really sunk in that day. Jacob, as you can imagine, this uh, this reunion for Black Knight Troop has been full of a lot of different emotions. You know, certainly we're we're proud of, of Sergeant Romache and happy for him. Uh, you know, but it's also a, a time of solace and solitude. And so, you know, just at this point, we while we are here, as, you know, to congratulate, to have the uh, the the camaraderie and, and revisit uh, the stories and, and and the memories. You know, we can't help but remember uh, those that fell that day. You know, Sergeant Martin, Sergeant Gallegos, Sergeant Kirk. Uh, you know, we had, we had Sergeant Hart out there, Specialist Scusa. Uh, of course, Specialist Mace uh, fortunately made it out of Keating alive, but then, uh, you know, because of his grievous wounds, wasn't able to make it through surgery. And uh, Specialist Griffin, uh, PFC Thompson, and so it's been a, a, a cathartic uh, 
few days for us as well, visiting with the family members who, in, in coming, they've really been able to, to uh, grab hold of maybe a, a part of their sons or husbands that they had not previously been able to do. And then in the memories that we share, it's also kind of uh, continuing to honor their sacrifices and, and that, those of Clint and his family and really the greater Army family. Because, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, people are our Army. Appreciate you guys. Thanks. Mr. Lopez, our news, do you have anything? Okay. Uh, Mr. Simmons, uh, did you have any follow-up questions? Uh, yes, uh, I do. Um, trying to get a sense of distance. Uh, LRAS 2 appears to be the furthest out of, of the uh from the, the the part of the base. Uh can somebody give me some kind of distance here uh that'll uh give me some perspective on this photo I'm looking at? Uh this is Lieutenant Larson here. Uh from the aid station to LRAS two was approximately two hundred yards. Uh going by the Shura building and uh, by the Red Platoon barracks to the aid station, it'd be about right around 200 yards. Okay, and an LRAS is a, a Humvee with a, with, a, with a gun on board? This is Captain Porter speaking. LRAS is long-range scout surveillance system. It's an optic that enables oh. our reconnaissance efforts to uh, view long-range targetry. But, yes, there would have been a machine gun on that truck as well. Okay. Well, I, I see two, two items labeled truck and two LRASs, uh, but they're all on the Humvee platform? This is Captain Portis. Yes, sir, that's correct. And we refer to those affectionately as LRAS-1 and LRAS-2. And then Stand 2 Truck 1. Yeah, Stand 2 Truck 1 and Stand 2 Truck 2. Yeah. And they remained in place during the fight. They didn't maneuver. This is our Rasmussen. Um, yeah, they were. We used them as more of a, a guard post than anything else. They had been left over from previous units, and uh, you know they provided good cover and protection. And um, you know you could you could mount some pretty heavy weapon system on. So a lot of them weren't up to par engine-wise, mechanically-wise, but they uh, definitely served as good towers. Okay, and then uh, you guys are cavalry, so I'm not really sure how many soldiers are in a troop. Uh, can you give me some idea how many Americans were on the base at, uh, at that time? This is Captain Porter, sir. It's hard to give you one specific answer for... Uh, across the board with the Army because it depends on the type of brigade that you're in uh, right. to which type of cavalry troop that you have. What I can tell you that that day is that there were 52 U.S. soldiers at uh, uh, Combat Outpost Keating and an additional 20 U.S. soldiers at Observation, Observation Post Fritchie. Now, just to put into perspective, O.P. Fritchie is uh, doctrinally a part of Cop Keating, although geographically OP is on the top of the mountain, so there's there's quite a separation uh, in terms of terrain between the OP and the COP. So you're looking at, at at 52 and 20 respectively, and then we had uh, about an additional uh, 12 soldiers 
back at Ford Operating Base Bostic, which served as a, a headquarters and logistics node to push uh, and receive supplies. And then during that time, uh, the Army's uh, you know, stance is that we're trying to send roughly about 7 to 10% of any one unit on R&R. And so we had a handful of guys on R&R leave at that time as well. Okay. Now, is the outpost you refer to in the, in the reconstruction I'm, I'm looking at, it looks almost like that the overlooking the the overlooking Keating is a mosque. Is a, yeah, so the out a, I'm sorry, sir. Well, I, I, they, they're showing a building with a blue dome okay, way so up on top. This is Captain Portis again. Remember that you're looking at the Hindu Kush Mountains, where the mountains go up well above 22,000 feet. Combat outpost Keating was at the very bottom of the valley at the convergence of the two rivers, so everything around it was on high ground. To our north and west was the village of Ermul, which is where the mosque that you're seeing is located. Okay. So observation post Fritchie was at the top of the mountain uh, immediately south of combat outpost Keating. The terrain that you're looking at, that representation, is primarily mm -hmm. of combat outpost Keating, and the only reason for that is because that's where Sergeant Romache was that right, day, and right. so the, that graphical depiction is in relative to his actions. Okay, and and within the outpost, it, it there I'm looking there there's barely any cover uh, on on the uh, what would that be the western side of the outpost? There's a handful of buildings and uh, and the roads. Um, there aren't a, there aren't a lot of uh, trenches or bunkers or anything um, like that, right? Am I am I assuming you, this correctly? Are you asking what the situation was like with cover and concealment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That whole the whole western side looks pretty wide open. Uh, yeah. Yeah, this is our Rasmussen. Um, yeah, it was. We had used it as a trash pit, which is where we put all our trash and burned it all. So we couldn't really live or occupy that side unless we were doing, you know, perimeter checks or stuff like that. So uh, we kept that area pretty much off limits, and we had uh, some HESCO barriers surrounding that side on the road to, uh, you know, keep anybody from coming in and out, and uh, some Constantino wire on top of that. And, and which buildings did, did uh, you guys ha have to clear? Uh, the Shura building right at the gate? Yes, sir. And and some of the buildings further to the west, or that's right. The oh. ammunition supply point and what they refer to as the Afghan security guards location, uh, ASG hut, is what we called it. And that that's on the other side of the river, right? No, no you're confusing that with the Afghan National Police headquarters. That would have been ah. on the north side of the river. The ASG and the ASP, the Ammo Supply Point and Afghan Security Guard position, uh, those were both almost in the nucleus of the camp. If not the nucleus, say the western uh, perimeter of the buildings. So not the perimeter, but the, the buildings. Okay. It was pretty much the whole... The whole western side of the camp, sir, is uh, the area that Sergeant Romache had to clear um, and and get control of again. Um, yeah, 
all the latrines that were closed off, you know, were, you know, the ammo, they had taken control of the ammo supply point. We had to get that back and, you know, pretty much every building except for the building that the mortars were occupying, uh, the Taliban had taken control of. And the Sergeant Romache, had he had any sniper training or marksman training to do some of the shooting that he appears to have done? Uh, so our standard training during train-up for deployments is marksmanship training. Uh, he was always a, 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 an expert marksman. Uh, I cannot comment on whether or not he received sniper training, though. Well, they, I mean, the, the the citation and the and the narrative mentions the use of a of a of a uh, Russian sniper rifle. So that I I, I find that fairly impressive. And this is uh, Lieutenant Larson. Uh, Sergeant Romache was very well versed on uh, multiple weapon systems. Uh, whether it was an American sniper rifle, if he had that in his hands, he could have used that. Uh, the Russian Dragunov, he would have no problem using that. It's a pretty simplistic weapon. A lot of times, uh, this is Captain Porterskin, you know, he and the other NCOs and, and junior officers would take it upon themselves in their downtime between missions and going up on guard to cross-train on weapon systems. And so whether it was using the mortars or the sniper weapons, uh, you know, or even being able to coordinate with the Latvians, uh, there was always some kind of cross-training going on just to uh, ensure that we had a form of redundancy on our capabilities on the outpost. And that's a, that's a common uh, technique among Army units. Okay, and, and one last question, gentlemen. Is there a helipad in the COP? Uh, this is Lieutenant Larson. Uh, no, there is not a landing zone inside the COP. Uh, it would be across the river. Uh, where the the point where the two rivers meet across the bridge, uh, it's approximately 70 yards by 30 yards in the dry season, and a lot smaller when the river rises. And what? Uh, well, so so you didn't have an immediate medevac available then? Uh, no, sir. This is Lieutenant Larson again. Uh, we had to wait until uh, Captain Portis and the QRF had walked down the mountain to help us secure the, uh, the outpost. And then once we had uh, more people, we cleared the LZ, and that's when uh, they called in for the medevacs for the wounded and uh, the fallen heroes. And um, was Sergeant Romache medevac as, as part of that? No, sir. This is Captain Porter. Sergeant Romache was not medevac. Uh, in fact, only the... Uh, the KIAs were the ones that were, were uh, immediately medevaced, and then those that were seriously injured. Uh, so we had a lot of walking wounded that continued to remain on the camp and fight. All right, thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, Jacob Rogers, did you have any follow-up questions? Uh, yeah, possible. Um, you know, I was kind of wondering, I mean, yesterday uh, when you guys were in the East Room, you know, and uh, uh, Obama was there. He, he draped the medal, uh, the medal on Romache. Uh, you guys sitting in the in the crowd. I mean, what was what was going through your mind when you saw that? Uh, this is Sergeant Rasmussen. Um, you know, it was a it was one of those culminating moments that you know you hear about, and we've been waiting for it. And you know, we've been going through all these steps, you know, talking to everybody about this moment that happened. And when you actually see it happen, 
you know, it's, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a great sense of pride. It also brings a lot of closure to, uh, you know, what happened that day. And I think that's, you know, the way it is for a lot of people. It's finally, you know, a chapter that it doesn't necessarily get closed, but it, it, it helps, you know, the healing process that people are actually recognizing, you know, this man for what had happened that day. And then to have Obama stand up and recognize, you know, the families of the fallen and, you know, the rest of the unit, it was just a, you know, a huge honor. And, you know, I think it was, I think it was awesome. It couldn't have gone any better. Yeah, so, uh, Lieutenant Larson, how about you, man? Uh, sir, for me, it was uh, it was a well-deserved recognition of an American hero. Uh, he wasn't accepting that the Medal of Honor for himself. He was he was accepting it for all the soldiers that that were there that day, all the soldiers that are in the Army, in the Marines, in the Air Force. He. He was accepting that medal as a true American hero, and it was just a great honor to uh, be asked to join him uh, that day or yesterday in the uh, in the White House. Cool. You know, uh, kind of curious. I mean, he's uh, he, he spent some time with Obama in the Oval Office, and when you guys had that that large reception, I mean, Panetta was there. It sounds like, and when you guys had basically the top brass of the nation. <laughs> Um, there, I mean, what, how was Roman Shea handling all this? You know, what's, what was he like yesterday? Uh, this is Lieutenant Larson. Uh, he was just his quiet self, uh, trying not to – he wasn't taking any credit. He he was just acting like his normal self. Uh, anytime somebody would say anything good about him, he would, he would accolade that if it wasn't for the soldiers beside him, and his his brothers in arms, his family, that he wouldn't have been able to do it. So he he took it very well. He's a soft-spoken individual, and he just takes it with grace, I guess. Mr. Lopez, do you have a question? Yeah. Hey, um, I assume you guys are all have moved on to different units now, right? Yes. How do you guys stay in contact with each other? How often do you call each other? Do you know each other? Um, I know, you know, like the really, really close friends, like you know, Lieutenant Larson and and Clint and Armando Avalos and guys like that, and Brown and Harder. You know, I, you know, talk to him at least once or twice a week, just you know, on the phone, just catching up and you know, making sure everything's going good. And you know, so how long has it been since the unit split up since you guys got fought there in Afghanistan split up? Better part. Well, we arrived in, uh, we returned home in May 2010. And, you know, within the months that followed, uh, easily 25% of the unit began to disperse to other uh, posts across the Army. Uh, the months that followed that, uh, I would say, you know, a, a great percentage, you know, another easily another 10 to 15% uh, exited the Army. And so uh, it was almost immediately, and I think that tends to be the sense uh, when a unit redeploys, that there's some stability in who's who for a little while, uh, and that that really helps with with coming home and reintegration, and then uh, you know everybody progresses uh, in their careers and and in their jobs and goes on to other units typically. When you guys left Bravo Company, I guess, can you move on? Does your effort, does your need to stay in contact with your buddies from from this conflict, is it different than like 
the other units you've been in in the Army, uh, for me, uh, this is Lieutenant Larson, if anybody's listening. Uh, Bravo Company 361 Cab is the only unit that I was ever in. The day I got to Iraq, I was Sergeant Rome Shades Driver. And the day I got out, he was my second sergeant still. I would never left his team or his platoon or his section for three and a half years. So you said Iraq? We were in Iraq in 07 together. And then we trained up for Afghanistan, and him and I had been training each other, or he'd been training me for so long that we never really had to talk on the radios to know what the other one was going to do. It was it was pretty amazing how I could just tell what he wanted me to do because he had trained me for so long. You were always an officer? No, I was a sergeant okay. most of the time. I just, I got out of the Army, joined the Nebraska National Guard, Became a lieutenant and just graduated flight school, so I, I was a sergeant. So you've been working with Rome Shade for a long time now? Yes. How do you keep calling him forever? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he comes and helps us uh, work cattle. Uh, he comes out of my house a couple times a year. So. Excellent. Well, were there any other questions? Maybe somebody joined the call late? Okay, if not, I want to hand the floor back over to Captain Portis for some closing remarks. Right, so the, the discussion kind of ended asking about, you know, kind of what, what B Troop means to us or, or if it's different from any other Army unit. And I think that uh, one of the special things about the Army and it, it being a, a people-driven Army is that wherever you go, you're going to have the unique experience of humanity, right? Um, and that, that sounds really cheesy, but but another way of saying that is, you know, people are what drive this, uh, not necessarily anything else. Uh, and, and so when you've got guys like Sergeant Romache or, or Lieutenant Larson or Sergeant Rasmussen uh, and the other hundred soldiers that served with uh, Bravo Troop uh, fighting, you've also got their families back home supporting them. And uh, And so for us, to be here has been very special. I would argue, though, that it's been equally special to be here with Tammy Romache or his children or the Gold Star families of those uh, who, who have fallen. But at the end of the day, uh, I think that there's a, there's a spirit about this troop uh, that, uh, you know, the guys uh, have, have a very close bond because of this battle that they survived. And, uh, you know, because of that, they continue to be, uh, you know, a decisive group of people that uh, go out and, and take the lessons learned and the spirit of, of the experiences in 2009 in Afghanistan to their new units. Uh, and, and or like with Sergeant Rasmussen, he continues to progress up the ranks in uh, the 3rd Squadron, the 61st Cavalry. And so he's continuing to teach those younger soldiers beneath him the lessons which uh, Sergeant Romache uh, taught him years ago. And so there's, there's kind of a, a really big circle of life here of, of lessons learned. And uh, we just can't say enough how grateful we are to our soldiers and how, how uh, proud of the Romaches that we are uh, for, for this, this medal, which is, is very well-deserved. He won't take any of the credit of it, but I will tell you that he is a, a superior leader for this Army. Uh, so with that, I'll, I'll pass the floor back to you, Sergeant Sweet.
Thank you, sir. Thank you, everyone, for your participation in the call. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today to speak on such an important issue to the Army and our nation. For additional information and resources about Staff, Staff Sergeant Clinton Romache and the Battle of Combat Outpost Keating, please visit www.army.mil slash Medal of Honor slash Romache. Again, thank you, everyone, for your participation, and this concludes today's roundtable. You're free to disconnect.